This episode of Outlines contains descriptions of crime scenes that some may find disturbing, so listener discretion is advised. Remember that day? It was a Monday, I think it was a Monday, because I remember going to Brownies. Yeah, it was Monday. And went to school the next day. We knew nothing, wasn't sure what was happening, because obviously we went to bed and things were going here and there. And I remember going to school, because I went to the primary school at Ellis Cone, we all did, and remember two detectives coming up, see these two people in the car, and we were summoned to the headmaster's office, and we were taken out that day down to Patterswick, from my uncle and aunt's farm. We stayed there for a while, wasn't sure how long. We wasn't allowed to watch the news. We used, we had our tea, and my aunt and uncle, or we called them aunt and uncle, said it's time to go out and play, because the news was coming on. We never used, We never listened to the news. Probably they were protecting us from whatever. Because I remember going in the caravan with my brother and we smoked it out. And that, yeah. Yeah, we weren't that good. And I remember Sheena going with... Sheena was called in by these two men. I thought, I don't know who they were, because my auntie wouldn't say. And we just kept on playing. And I remember going to Braintree, Woolworths. Got some slab of plastic in, I remember that. And on my auntie's farm, saw a foal being born. We, looking at it now, I think they're trying to protect us. What was going on? We wasn't told by my aunt and uncle. They weren't told. We thought it was just a holiday. That's Jane. She's in her mid-60s now, but she was only eight when her sister Linda Smith was taken, whilst running a short errand one dark afternoon in January of 1961. Fifty-seven years later, her family are still looking for answers. I'm Jess Carter, and this is the Outlines Podcast. was part of a large family. There was her mother, Patricia, her father, Robert, and five siblings. Sheena, who was ten, Jane, eight, Robin, seven, Fiona, two, and Melvin, just six months old. Three years later, she would have known another sister, Petra. Though Linda had been born in Liverpool, she was only a couple of years old when her family moved to Earlscone in Essex which was Patricia's home village. After a short stay in nearby Grinstead Green with Patricia's parents, Robert eventually found employment as an iron founder at Atlas Ironworks. They weren't rich, just a normal, working-class family, careful with money. Nowadays, their home would be worth hundreds of thousands of pounds, but then it was workers' accommodation, situated on Ellscone High Street, set back from the road by a small green. The house is at the end of a terrace, 
a little cottage next door to the Baptist church where the kids attended Sunday school. Linda was a small girl. She appeared younger than her age and stood four foot six with blue eyes and recently bobbed light brown hair. There are no photographs of her with her hair like this, only a police mock-up, crudely sketched and helmet-like over the head of her pretty and smiling young face. She was the quiet one, but she was lovely. And she had a rabbit, and we had a cat, one called Topsy, and her rabbit's name was Smokey. We lived at the Green. We used to go to Sunday school. She used to go down to Nana's, down Queen's Road, get her papers. On January the 16th, 1961, Linda arrived home from school just after 4pm. She attended Halstead Secondary Modern, just a few miles away in the neighbouring town. And that day, like most others, she travelled home on the school bus with her friends Barbara Evans and Margaret Matten. As was her routine, she called in briefly at home to see her mother and drop off her school books. And then, dressed in a dark brown coat with a tartan-lined hood, black shoes fawn-coloured pull-up socks, a navy blue sweater, a pullover, a white blouse and her black striped school scarf, she headed off on the five-minute journey to her great-grandmother's house at eight Queen's Cottages. As I walk you through Linda's last known movements, you'll notice that times shift and jump and I promise that I'll address all of these discrepancies in the next episode. But it's complex and right now, I want us to stay with Linda as she walks to visit Emily Sharman, who lived with her spinster daughter Ivy, Linda's great-aunt. This was a regular occurrence, and Linda arrived at about 4.20, according to Emily. At 4.30, Ivy Sharman returned home, and the three of them sat around and chatted about their day until roughly 4.45, when Ivy popped next door, leaving Linda and Emily to speak about a free gift that Emily had seen in a magazine, the name of which she couldn't recall. She asked Linda if she would go and check on the name with Ivy next door, and then run up to Hughes, the newsagents, to buy it. And the girl happily agreed. She took a ten-shilling note in her purse to purchase the magazine and to pay a bill. And then she headed out into the winter's dark. There are two routes by which Linda could have run her errand that afternoon. Emily and Ivy's house being where it is. You can turn right or left and either choice will mean you eventually emerge onto the high street. To turn right takes you onto Queen's Road and on the high street it's just a little further to reach the newsagents. To turn left takes you down a small alleyway the locals call the Cinder Path and then you will turn left again up Burroughs Road which takes you out on the corner close to Hughes. Nowadays, the cinder path still sits, exactly as it did then, and the residents of number eight Queen's Cottages unknowingly still face that same choice that Linda did 57 years before. That day, Linda chose to go left, 
marginally the quickest route to Hughes. And I know it sounds arbitrary to mention, but I assure you, it's not. She walked the cinder path and emerged to see Mrs Beryl Hurd and her young son Gary on the opposite side of the road. And Linda stopped for a few minutes to play with Gary. The next day, Beryl would swear to the police that she remembered returning home no later than 4.30. We do know that, whatever the time, Linda continued up Burroughs Road and onto the High Street, and it is here that her movements become muddled. I remember the area, and I know we used to go around the back there. We used to go into the cobblers a lot because we used to get the little tobacco tins and we used to collect tobacco tins as you did back then, but that was quite a dingy, dark area there, you know, it never a lot of light in there. And um, and the cobbler in there was quite a strange man, but we used to go in there and get these tobacco tins when he'd finished smoking them, because it's all roll your own then. That's Linda's sister, Sheena. She's vibrant and expressive. Throughout our conversation, she speaks excitedly, and you can hear her bracelet hit the table as she gestures. She's telling me about the cobbler, whose workplace we know Linda visited that afternoon. I won't be naming him, and you'll see why in a later episode, but he's next on our timeline. Every day, at around 4.45, he'd lock up the shed where he worked, and walk a few doors up to the co-op bakery and cafe for his tea. It's no more than a 20-second walk, and his routine barely ever varied. At some point after Linda started to run her errand, she must have realised she wanted to ask him for tobacco tins. To do this from the top of Burroughs Road, she would have had to have gone past the newsagents and the entrance to Queen's Road, cross over the high street and down past the cafe on her right, and then she would have reached the cobbler's shed. He told police that it was no later than ten to five when he locked up. He turned and told her to go home because it was cold out. He left Linda behind him as he walked the thirty or so steps to the cafe's entrance for his afternoon tea, and said that he did not look around, and that he never saw Linda again. We've one more person who saw Linda that day, and that is her school friend Margaret Mattin, who told police that just after five o'clock, she was herself running an errand at Hughes the newsagents, and on her way in she passed Linda standing on the pavement outside, illuminated in the dark as she looked at the window display. They did not speak, and the girl held nothing in her hands. If Margaret's time is correct, then this is the last sighting of Linda. By the time that Linda's father Robert returned home at 5.40 that Monday afternoon, her mother Patricia had started to become concerned. I weren't sure at one point whether, when my mum realised that she was missing, whether it's because me auntie Ivy, um, whether she came to me mum, going to me mum to see if Linda was home, or whether me mum waited for me dad to come home to go up to hers to see if she was there. So... Obviously, it must have been round about five-ish or thereabouts because Linda would normally have been back. That evening, at around 5.40pm, 
Patricia and Robert gathered up their young children and set out to search for their eldest daughter. First they called in on Emily and Ivy at Queen's Cottages, where the two women were growing increasingly worried about Linda's failure to return from her errand. They then stopped by friends' houses to see if she'd lost track of time while playing, but nobody seemed to have seen her. They walked up and down Earlscone High Street, cutting through the graveyard on the corner and around past the primary school. By this time, more than a few hours had passed since Linda had begun her errand, and the village policeman was called in. But when he was unable to assist, he contacted Essex Police Headquarters in Chelmsford. And the next morning, Tuesday the 17th, Inspector Chapman of Halstead Police Station, an experienced policeman, arrived in Earlscone supported by a team of officers who began to work their way methodically through the streets. That day, they spoke to villagers and gathered testament from those who had seen Linda the previous afternoon. Mr Geoffrey Hughes, the newsagent, said, She comes here regularly for the papers, and we expected her, but she never arrived. Nowadays, the village of Earlscone is situated on the A1124, the main road that runs between the towns of Halstead and Colchester. Nothing much has changed over the past 60 or so years. If you were to look at an ordnance survey map from the time of Linda's disappearance, you'd see that the only difference is the road name itself. Now, as it was then, it's possible to use the A1124 to detour all around the northern parts of Essex, and quickly head over the county lines to neighbouring Suffolk. The road is busy, and even at a time when not everyone possessed transport, it was never quiet, which is why police chose to establish roadblocks at each end of the village that Tuesday afternoon. And it was through this that they received word from a lorry driver and his friend of a fourth sighting of Linda. This came at about 5.10pm, just a short distance from her home on the high street. The men said they were convinced it was her after seeing a photograph on the evening news. And they were not the only ones who believed they had seen Linda. A local woman thought she'd seen a small girl crying in the churchyard on Monday evening, though she did not stop to help the girl. Another sighting, again in the graveyard, was made by 15-year-old Nita Beatty and her boyfriend Malcolm Beerham, who, while walking the corner stretch of the high street known as the Causeway, which curved sharply around the church, had seen a lorry and heard something that sounded like cries coming from behind the hedgerow. Nita was scared, but Malcolm thought it most likely to have been the cry of an animal. The area was searched, but nothing was found. An even stranger sighting was that of a couple driving towards Halstead from Earl's Cone, who thought they saw a small girl walking along the road about two miles outside of the village. This was at 11.45pm, but despite the late hour, they continued on with no second thought. While all of these sightings are possibly Linda, one stood out from the rest. This was made by Mr Stanley Hogg, owner of Ben's, a roadside cafe between Braintree and Chelmsford, 
a 15-mile drive in the Halstead direction. In a newspaper photograph, Mr Hogg wears a flat cap and glasses and he stares deeply into the camera lens, a cigarette hanging from the corner of his mouth. He told the Essex County Standard that it was about 5.20 or 5.30pm, just as I was cashing up before closing time. I saw the lights of a vehicle run onto the forecourt and this little girl, she was aged about 12 or 13, came in with a man aged about 40 to 45. He asked for two teas and she said no when he asked if she wanted anything else. She seemed quite happy. They took their tea to the table and stayed about five minutes. I checked with the police because the little girl in the paper hadn't a fringe and I thought that this girl's hair was bobbed as well. He had crinkly lines about the eyes, as though he laughed a lot. After this, the police appealed for the man with the small girl to come forward, but no one ever did. By Wednesday the 18th of January, Linda had been missing for two days and head of the Essex CID Detective Chief Superintendent Ernest Jack Barkway arrived in Earlscone with 50 police constables and detectives from Halstead, Braintree and Chelmsford. I talked about Jack Barkway in my episode on the murder of Mary Creek and if you've not heard it, I suggest you have a listen. He was a forceful character and one not accustomed to failure. Immediately, he took control of the situation, ordering the interviewing of all 600 pupils at Halstead Secondary Modern, and that the search for Linda be expanded further afield and into the surrounding countryside. The search range swept out to the World War II airfield a couple of miles south of the village, and the River Colne to the north. The river is murky, lined with reeds and meanders through the Essex countryside. In times of high rains, it swells and floods. By Thursday the 19th of January, frogmen were brought in, and the water dragged from the village down as far as Wakesmill Pool, about four miles as the river winds. Superintendent Barkway also coordinated a number of small search parties made up of civil defence volunteers, as well as the local forestry commission and gamekeepers, and Linda's father Robert. The police brought along tracker dogs, and vast areas in and around the village were covered. However, nothing of Linda could be found. It was as if she'd vanished without a trace. The huge quantity of police officers attracted the interest of the local press, who descended upon the village in droves, each looking for that exclusive interview with just the right person. In Richard J. White's book, Little Miss Friendly, He details a conversation he had with Linda's friend, Margaret Matten, the girl who saw her at 5pm that night outside Hughes. Margaret told Richard that she remembered reporters drinking in the local pubs and then going around the village knocking on doors for a story. She said some even forced their way onto the school bus and once, when one knocked relentlessly at her front door, her father was forced to physically throw him out into the garden. It was at around this time that Richard and Sybil Cutts, who were friends of the Smith family, took in the children temporarily at Rainhatch Farm near Stysted, 
It would be three months before the older children, Robin, Jane and Sheena, were able to return to school. We were shielded. We were never allowed to um, listen to the news or anything. And generally, um, obviously we were worried and kept wondering if they found Linda, have they found her. But we weren't unhappy there. We was quite enjoying our life there. And I think kids... Kids get over things quickly or they accept things quickly. Um, I always remember, I mean, I think the time on the farm was more memorable than the, 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 the thing with Linda and all, all that involved um, because they were our happy times. So we're putting the other time behind us, just waiting to hear if she was, they found her, not thinking that they'd find her dead. I just thought she was just missing. But I remember when we was on this farm, um, we're in. I slept in this bedroom with 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 the girl, and um, and I remember the floor was crooked, and I got into bed and I kept rolling to one side because the floor was crooked. Um, that was really funny, and I thought I keep falling out of bed, you know, and um, and that's why. And another time, I was allowed to go and get the eggs, and I loved going collecting the eggs and walking. I really enjoyed the farm; it was lovely. Not sure how long we were there for. I think maybe three weeks or so. I really can't remember. And then we heard that Linda hadn't been found and we were really sad and a bit upset about that. Um, Do you remember being told that she'd been murdered? Don't think we'd been told she was murdered. I think we were told that she was dead. Um... There's a lot that confuses those siblings I talked to who were old enough to remember their time on the farm. Weeks and months blur together, and none of them really know when they first discovered that Linda had been killed, or how they felt when they did. Have you ever been to where she was found? No. No, I go, par I go past the road quite often, and I keep thinking, that's where she was found, down that road. And I haven't... Keep saying I'm going to go down there one day, but I haven't. But I know where it is. Do you think there would be a benefit to going down there? No. Um, no, but I would like... I don't know. Perhaps something's stopping me going down there. I don't know, because I could have done it at any time. And that's always on my mind when I go past that. But I never... Something seems to stop me going down there. Perhaps I don't want to go down there, but I know that's where she was found. But I don't know if that's where she was murdered. If Sheena was to take that turn, she'd be travelling down Stackwood Road, and maybe she'd struggle to locate the place where Linda's body was found, near the small villages of Polstead and Hadley Heath in Suffolk. It's about 20 miles away from Earl's Cone, and can be reached in either direction, by travelling through Colchester or, the other way, through the towns of Halstead and Sudbury. Whatever route you choose to take, however, at some point you must leave the main road and detour down narrow country lanes. Whichever direction you come from, it would be hard to find without guide or knowledge of the area. When Gemma and I visit in mid-February, I find I have to use photographs to help identify the little opening to the ploughed field where Linda was left. We've travelled through open, winding country lanes, twisting through vast swathes of the Suffolk countryside. And we park just near the field's entrance, in the mud by the side of the road. 
1961 there stood a gate, but now access is open. We wrap up warm and follow the boundary hedge along a few metres. And there, close to a forked tree, is the place. It's bitterly cold that day, but the sun is shining. We can see through the hedge glimpses to the road. The road that 72-year-old Harold Richardson, nicknamed Johnny Feathers for his love of poaching, and his dog walked 57 years earlier as they went to lay snares some 300 yards from his cottage on Stackwood Road. They let themselves into the field, and glancing around, Harold thought he saw a bundle of clothes a little way off, laying beside the hawthorn hedge. He went closer to investigate, and there he saw that it was Linda, just earlier that day, Friday the 20th of January, at the Bauhaus Tie, Harold and his friends had drunk beer and discussed the girl from Earl's Cone, missing for four days. Now, she lay before him, face down, her coat lain upon her body, and her hood pulled up over her head. She had been strangled to death with her own school scarf, and strangely, her arms lay stretched out in front of her, a position the killer would have had to place them in before the onset of rigor mortis. She was fully dressed, but her right shoe was missing, and beside her lay her purse, with great-grandmother Emily's ten-shilling note still intact. The field has been sown in ruts, and as I move back to take some photographs, the turned soil sticks to my trainers, and I leave indistinct footprints in the wet ground. Gemma is keen to leave, so we head back to the van. Even in the winter's sun, the place feels unsettling. It's too easy to imagine the body of a little girl, laying quietly, lonely with only the bare trees and hedgerows for company. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Outlines podcast. If you've enjoyed what you heard, then please do rate and review the show on whichever podcast provider you use and help to spread the word. I'm on Facebook by searching for the Outlines podcast and Twitter at Outlines podcast. And if you've anything you'd like to say, then please do contact me there or privately at theoutlinespodcast at gmail.com. Part two of my look into the life and circumstances surrounding Linda's murder will be out in a couple of weeks, and I'll be posting notes on the case and media to theoutlinespodcast.wordpress.com over the coming days. Thanks to all of you for your continued support, and to Linda's family, as well as the author Richard White. Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by me, Jess Carter, with additional input by Gemma Frost. The music was composed and performed by Elias Hardy.